0: Politics, 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 politics. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Politics, Politics, Politics program. My name is Justin Robert Young. Joining you on a Tuesday, boy, do we got a great interview for you. It's coming up a little bit later. But let's just say, I I booked this interview with the idea that I'd probably be yelled at. <laughs> like I don't normally do these interviews I don't normally do interviews where I, I normally do interviews where I'm, I'm Just trying to learn because I think that this is a, a good Opportunity for us to all be culturally Enriched and although we do get That in this interview we also Get a genuine Disagreement folks This interview is all About whether or not Politics should be covered As competitive sport And the damage that it might do to our fair democracy. So, uh, that will be coming up a little bit later in the program. But first, let's go over some of the stuff that is happening right now. The headline that is uh, atop all of your news sites today is that Ambassador to the European Union Gordon Sondland has been blocked from testifying to Congress, this is, of course, in relation to the impeachment over the Ukraine call. Sondland was at the heart of a bunch of text messages that were leaked over the last few days, right? I guess it was Thursday that they were that they were that they were out there. But Sondland was at the heart of a a few back and forth because as the ambassador to the European Union, obviously, he's got a lot of say in some of the stuff that was happening. And he seemed to be, at least a few of the uh, text messages seemed to hint that there indeed was a bit of a quid pro quo. I mean, the two big explosive statements that came out of those text messages were, well, on on one side, on, on the liberal side, you had a text message between top Ukrainian U.S. diplomat. William Taylor saying, are we now saying that the security assistance and White House meeting are conditioned on investigations? And Sondland replied, call me. One week later, Taylor texted Sondland, as I said on the phone, I think it's crazy to withhold security assistance for help with a political campaign. Sondland pushed back saying that Trump had been crystal clear that there were no quid pro quos of any time. So... I don't know. Uh, Look, uh, uh, I don't think this is a particularly good move for the administration. Uh, Sondland flew from Brussels to Washington, D.C. He agreed to testify before he was called and seemed very comfortable doing it. He has sent signals throughout uh, through his lawyers saying that he hopes that the State Department, which has now blocked him from testifying, reconsiders and he will stay in D.C. at the ready to testify at any moment. So I don't particularly get the strategy here. Donald Trump did tweet about this situation because, of course, saying that he would love to have Sondland uh, testify. However, these hearings had become a place where Republicans could not get their truth out. They are kangaroo courts. Uh, Now, whether or not these would be politically... Uh, sharpened hearings is is kind of beyond question of course they would be you know this is this is impeachment is a political process and Sondland would be uh, dragged out to the public square and and beaten by the liberal or the the, the democratic members and uh, lauded by the Republican members and then we would all move on. I don't exactly think. That totally stonewalling this investigation is in the president's best interest. I think he wants to have there be, uh, you know, these loud public hearings. People get tired of hearings. People got tired of the Mueller hearings. They might be pre-tired of hearings right now, especially if they're not explosive. And I don't suspect that the Sondland uh, testimony would be explosive. So I don't quite get it, but, you know, there's a lot about this president that I don't quite get, including the other big story. This was from Monday. Donald Trump has reversed our policy when it comes to Syria and Turkey and the Kurds. If you're not familiar with this, then let me go ahead and give you a little bit of a recap. Turkey is run by an autocratic dictator by the name of Erdogan. Erdogan apparently made a call to the United States to inform them that they had planned on invading northern Syria and whether or not the United States would allow that. The United States indeed has. This led to a robust bipartisan uh, pushback. Uh, effectively criticizing the fact that the United States was indeed dealing in good faith with Turkey when we don't really have a whole lot of reason to. Donald Trump pushed back on that yesterday, saying that in his great and unmatched wisdom, actual sentence, he would punish Turkey economically should they do anything to, and this is another key vector here, the Kurdish fighters in Syria that were kind of the, the tip of the spear in the uh, uh, breakdown of ISIS fighters. Of course, ISIS standing for Islamic State in Syria. So first, Donald Trump defended the Kurds. And then this morning, he defended Turkey. So many people conveniently forget that Turkey is a big trading partner of the United States. In fact, they make the structural steel frame for our F-38 fighter jet. They also have been uh, good to deal with helping me to save many lives in the Idlib province and returning in very good health, at my request, Pastor Brunson, who had many years of a long prison term remaining. He also noted that Turkey was an important member in good standing with NATO and that Erdogan would be coming to the United States as Trump's guest on November 13th. That, I'm sure, will be Wholly uncontroversial. <laughs> you know, uh, this is one of those things where uh, uh, obviously there are foreign relation hawks that that uh, focus in tightly on this. But let me go ahead and 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 take a little bit of a zig on this story because, quite frankly, I don't. I I, I in general, I have a tremendous affiliate. Uh, I, I I very much appreciate and honor. The Kurdish people, the Kurdish people are, you know, probably over the last two decades have been revealed to be some really tough folks, both in Iraq and in Syria. And they have been fairly stalwart allies of the United States, despite the fact that we really have not uh, maybe been the best friends to the Kurds over the past few decades. So. Beyond that and beyond having a tremendous uh, <laughs> I don't really think very highly of Erdogan I don't really know Much more about how to handle this kind of story Aside from the fact that Look, it, this is when Lindsey Graham gets to be very mad at Donald Trump And he stamps his feet and he says this, is, this will not stand And we're going to pass various different uh, You know, laws or resolutions in Congress But whatever I mean, ultimately, whatever The one thing I might say is that this got the fact that this was able to get as much play as it is might not be great signs for impeachment. Because any kind of foreign policy story will always rank. It will have lower d d newsworthiness stats than something like impeachment. And I don't think that this is necessarily international incident worthy. This is, you know, probably getting the kind of play that it did, largely because Republicans were also mad at Donald Trump. And maybe that does play into impeachment to say, oh, look, a little daylight. Yeah, it has nothing to do with impeachment, but look at Republicans getting mad at Donald Trump. What does that mean? How can we project it forward? But it does also mean that there was not enough news to report about. Impeachment that day that would be more important than Turkey and Syria and the Kurds. So, just something to keep an eye on. Something I was thinking about. All right. One more thing. I just want to make everybody aware of this because I did take a tremendous stand. I said on Twitter, I said on the podcast, I said anywhere that I could that if Hillary Clinton. runs for president, I will stream on Twitch for a week wearing clown makeup. And indeed, I will hold to that. However, it might be time for me to start looking up how to apply grease paint. Or at least, it would be, depending on whether or not you believe a few reports that say that Hillary Clinton is indeed thinking about jumping into the presidential race. I still believe that's not going to happen. And and this goes beyond poo-pooing other people's predictions. Big big shout out to my boy John C. Dvorak. My boy John C. Dvorak, let me talk you about John C. Dvorak. All right. John C. Dvorak, who I don't know if I've ever met in person, but I feel like we're 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 friendly. I like I like John. I like the no agenda uh, folks. I like Adam Curry. Adam Curry and I had a really funny time on on Night Attack a, a year or so ago. I very much enjoy their whole operation and all the quirks and eccentricities that go along with it. But let me tell you this. People have been telling me to do an interview with John Dvorak for years. We had a back and forth, John and I did, uh, about uh, we'd go down to Jack London Square. We'd do it over a beer. It'd be a fun time. Then John drops off the face of the earth. So now all of a sudden, Because I keep getting people emailing me, oh, this is Hillary. Hillary's going to run. This is the time that Hillary's going to run. And they're sending me John C. Dvorak talking about how Hillary's going to run on his newsletter. So my bedrock belief is that Hillary Clinton does nothing by surprise. I don't know if she has a spontaneous bone in her body. She, regardless of what you think about her, I think we can all agree is probably a big planner. She does not like doing things uh, without having a million different uh, levels of understanding of exactly how she's going to do it and mitigating the risk therein. It's the reason why she was probably too over-triangulated in the 2016 election and in the 2008 primary. So I don't believe, that's my belief about Hillary Clinton. That's my read on Hillary Clinton. I don't think that she jumps in spontaneously. And if if she was planning on spontaneously jumping in, it would be hilariously obvious by now. She would have already hired half the top talent in D.C. and then be saying, no, of course not. But she's not. The only reason why people are talking about this now is because she's out there promoting a book. And now we get these anonymous, uh, you know, multiple sources confirm, blah, blah, blah. I just don't buy it. So I put out this I'll stream for a week in clown makeup thing. And lo and behold, he can't answer my DMs. He can't answer my emails. But John C. Dvorak goes and takes a a screenshot of my my, uh, clown makeup thing and puts it in his newsletter and says, talk is cheap when you're debunking predictions. I mean, look, I'm not debunking a prediction. I'm betting against a prediction. I'm not debunking it. I'm betting against it. But this is beyond because I think John C. Dvorak has uh, staked out a position. I'm just saying my bedrock belief is that Hillary Clinton does nothing spontaneously. And that's something that I'm willing to put my face bare of paint and squeaky nose and frizzy wig. I'm willing to put my face on the line for that belief. So to recap whether or not Hillary Clinton is going to run for president... I will still bet no. But what a honking good time it would be if it happened, huh? All right, real quick, before we get into our interview, I want to thank everybody who has joined up at TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Again, TakePoliticsSeriously.com. You are the best. We've seen such tremendous growth over the past few weeks, uh, uh, and I'll tell you what, head on over to bit.ly slash px3 survey and take, uh, yeah, go ahead. We're we're taking the temperature of what we want this show to be going forward. I think we do have some some really cool changes on the horizon, and tell you what, you guys have come through, put your money where your mouth is. We are about to uh, uh, cross another little Mini milestone on the way to another bigger one. Uh, I I can't, again, I I can't say how much I appreciate you guys supporting real independent media. You know, I think I saw like the New York Times or something say, support independent media. Get out of here. Since when does the old gray lady, the old gray lady get to be independent media? independent of what? You are the you're the thing. You're the you're the establishment. Come on. No, you guys are keeping the dream alive right here and I appreciate it. Take politics seriously.com My guest today is Dana Young. She is an associate professor of communication and political science at the University of Delaware. And her latest book is Irony and Outrage, the Polarized Landscape of Rage, Fear and Laughter in the United States. And I think we're going to have maybe the best conversation we've had on this show because... Normally, there's uh, a, a, an issue of, uh, of me learning about. It. We have like awesome experts on, and I'm learning stuff, and I'm no doubt going to learn stuff here. But I think we might be on opposite sides of a certain conversation. But first, let me welcome Danny Young. Thank you so much for coming on the show.
1: <laughs> Way to set me up, Justin. And Thank I, you so much for having me. I am so excited that you are excited to have this conversation. So let's do
0: it. Yes. And the conversation is. And so and I, I forget exactly when I first saw a tweet thread of yours. Uh, it was it, it might have been around one of the debates, but you had probably. That, yeah. Something something that went, uh, I guess, semi viral, at least in the kind of like reporter Twitter universe that uh, uh, was about how damaging it is uh, that politics are covered like sports or battles, that there are winners and losers, and there are good guys and bad guys in 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 a in a moment where uh, uh, there's a clash, and then there's fallout. And I kind of have, and I sort of based a lot of this program that we're doing right now on kind of the opposite. That that I do think that covering things in a little bit more of a black and white way that emphasizes the fact that strategy and execution is a part of this process is healthy. So before we go into my position, I would love to hear yours.
1: Great. So I, I I would just say, I don't want to overstate my position on completely opposite sides of this. Okay. And here's why. Okay. What, what you do on this podcast is you provide a really fun, entertaining strategy frame deep dive into events of the day. Um, and you do it for an audience that is probably politically informed, probably coming from other sources of information to get their context, to get their background, to get their sort of broad political understanding. Yes, And I will also admit that because, I mean, I grew up in New Hampshire, the first primary state in the nation, and I love political campaigns from the time I was a child, because I'm that weird person. And so I, I enjoy personally that inside baseball strategy stuff. In fact, so much so that it wasn't natural for me to necessarily start criticizing news organizations for engaging in campaign coverage in that way. It wasn't until I started seeing the empirical data that I started to realize if that is all we have as citizens, that is a problem. If that becomes the dominant lens through which all citizens perceive all politics, that does all kinds of awful things, like reduces trust in politicians, reduces political participation, and reframes politics not to be about policies or about values or beliefs, but about these individual personalities and how all they want is power. So that's my
0: take. Got gotcha. you. All right so so then the the baseline uh, a negative that can come out of this is cynicism over everything that that everything uh, the, yeah. the lens by which we we look at everything is, oh sure therefore that because X because money, fame favors whatever whatever you want to fill that bucket with
1: Exactly right. And so the the concern about cynicism is is it so cynicism is a lack of trust and and it's coupled with usually a lack of con- contextual understanding. Mm-hmm. And it tends to lead to just dropping out of the political scene altogether. And so that kind of cynicism it it, or that kind of distrust is really dysfunctional and that is distinct from skepticism so skepticism is when you don't necessarily trust people's motives but you're not tuning out you're not just uninformed and staying that way you're seeking to get information and you're still participating in the process so that that is fine it's cynicism where people all full of it all politicians are out for themselves No one cares. It's all a game for them. It's all about power. And if everyone starts perceiving politics that way, democracy cannot work.
0: See, I guess this is where I I think that there is a disagreement because I genuinely kind of do feel that politicians are kind of all out for themselves, but I don't necessarily think that that's unique to the human condition. I I almost find that to be something that we all can can understand. And whether or not uh, uh, being a politician – Takes tremendous sacrifice, specifically on the national level, or any time that you are running a like, statewide office, but also below that, and and oftentimes far more thanklessly, you are certainly putting the larger good ahead of yourself on some level. But also, sure. it is something that we all do want something out of it, and 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 you know, should we blame a politician for being tremendously self motivated? Or at least is there, is there a danger in thinking that that is an element that, that goes into why they want to be in this position to begin with?
1: Sure. So let me just say – wait, are you there? Yeah, yeah. Okay, good, good. I thought I cut out. I'm sorry. No problem. Um, so – here is my sense of things. I think especially increasingly as our politics have become hypermediated where we only experience politics in a mediated way in terms of individual personalities and players just by virtue of the fact that our media are visual, okay?
0: Yeah.
1: That, I do think it takes a certain kind of person to get into politics in the first place. Yeah. And those people will probably tend to be more ego-driven and more narcissistic, right? But when we talk about some of these smaller players, whether it be at the state level, or you're talking about your local congressperson, I I really think that it's dangerous dangerous to imagine that they are motivated purely out of self interest. Because at some level, it's like, then why do this? Of all the things you could do, why do this? Right? Yeah. Especially it especially because it also then calls into question then. Is their selection of policy positions and platform completely arbitrary or completely driven by public opinion data? Do they not have any core ideology or value system that's driving what they perceive is best for the country? And I think if we think of that as as the default for everyone in office, why why would we participate if they're all so venal and terrible? Why would we?
0: I mean, my argument to that would be because they're useful tools. They 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 do the things that we want them to do. If there is public pressure and there is enough opinion polls that say that there should be a certain position, then they'll do the thing, which is really what we want.
1: So, thinking of them as sort of instruments to yes. carry out the will of the people, and that that's fine. Yes.
0: Yes. Yeah,
1: but they- then, but then, but but if they all are out for themselves can you trust them to carry out the will of the people?
0: If they are motivated by the things that we think they're motivated by, I would I would assume as much as you could assume that somebody is a good person and therefore will, will remain a good person under pressure and in a new environment, uh, you know, to, to hope that when Mr. Sure. Smith goes to Washington, he doesn't end up, you know, uh, 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 arrested in a drug sting for four months afterward.
1: <laughs> wait, but, but wait, I thought that you just said that you you don't necessarily think they're good
0: people. Yeah. No, I mean, I guess in, in my mind, uh, and this kind of comes from being a reporter, right? Uh, I, and, and there needs to be, when I was covering politics, there had to be some level in which I was going to draw a line between who the people that I was covering was or were as humans, right? And that would always inform the story on some yeah. level. And what... The ultimate goal of my writing was going to be, which is, who's doing well? Who's going to win? Who's? Uh, what is this move significant? Is this scandal matter? Uh, is this going to be reflected at the ballot box? So, in in my mind, whether or not a politician has a bad reputation, I, I don't know how much I I genuinely care. I, I think that that's that's okay. not up to the media. At least uh, that might be up to whether no, or no, not. No, no, no. I I get what you're saying there, but but. Based on what you're talking about,
1: can I just ask where, where will people learn how Elizabeth Warren is different from Cory Booker on health care? Where, where will we learn about you know what Donald Trump thinks about the U.S. on the national stage in terms of the nuance of foreign policy? Yeah. Where are we going to get that information, Justin? Well, I mean, I, I guess
0: I, I would not necessarily think that these two things are mutually exclusive, that you can you can look in a very harshly skeptical, bordering on cynical view, or at least a, a media outlet can, uh, and still accurately report what they say and still accurately report what yes, their positions sure.
1: yeah. are. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with you on that. Yeah,
0: they're definitely not mutually exclusive. Yeah, I mean, so so let's let's take a look at let's uh, Kamala Harris during this uh, primary, right? Uh, there, uh, she has adjusted, you know, in in her campaign thus far in a way that has raised media attention. Her position on health care, and there have been times where she has said, "Oh, she misunderstood a question," or she raised her hand yeah. and a, at a time that that uh, uh, she shouldn't have. But things, at least in in the way that it's been reported, it seems like she has pivoted, if, if, if ever so slightly, on certain details. I don't necessarily look at that as she's a shifty or a bad person, right? But I do look at that as an observer and say, yeah, she's trying to find what message resonates the most because she's trying to win an election for president. I, and I, I don't know if that necessarily, pointing out that strategy... Either A misrepresents what she wants for the country, or B necessarily makes her into anything other than a professional trying to do a job.
1: But does that in any way help people cast a vote?
0: I mean, it could make people know uh, more uh, aware of what her position is at least now, right? In case she changes it again. Sure. Oh yeah. Uh, and, sure. and if but they if they cotton to that, that then they're going to vote.
1: intents. But you could cover that shift without impugning intent, without framing it as her trying to get votes from a particular, you know, sector where she's polling particularly badly. Right. You could just talk about how the position has changed.
0: Yeah. Right. Well, sure. Uh, you, you, you can, although I don't quite know if I say. All right. So, so let, there's two ways of framing it. Either uh, Kamala Harris has clarified her position on health care that now she is not for. Uh, eliminating private insurance, and that is just a statement of fact, that I guess insinuates that maybe maybe she did before, but she says she didn't, and so we'll leave it there. And then you can say the the second step over, which is, Kamala Harris has said that she won't eliminate private insurance, therefore making her more attractive to moderates. And I guess your position is that the insinuation that she's doing it for a purpose, uh, in 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 direct measure takes away the fact that she's authentic? Well,
1: not just that. What we know from empirical data is that what happens to the sort of schemas or mental models in the minds of people who have copious exposure to that kind of reporting, the second example there, where she's doing this to appeal to moderates, what happens is that the entire schema through which people start to think about their political world writ large, becomes embedded in suspicion and this sense that everything is for strategy and it's not authentic and that no one is driven by values. And the the subsequent effect of that is this sense that the people who are my options at the ballot box are not as good of people as I. And therefore, why would I even participate in electing people who are so selfish and, and corrupt? So, it, and this happens across the board. Uh-huh. In fact, when you can look at it in terms of experimental data where you show people stories and then you measure it and you see what happens, it happens there. It happens in large scale survey research where you find it and, and you can look at it in panel data over time. So this has been like 30 years of research on this ever since, you know, Tom Patterson in the nineties, you know, he's at a Harvard and he documented this, this tendency in this book called out of order from 1996 he documented this tendency of reporters to report politics in this way and part of it's because that's how reporters see politics right it's also because on the campaign trail reporters are you know they get tired of the stump speech they hear it every week there's nothing new or novel about the stump speech yeah so the the story that changes is the strategy and the pitch and the polling data, which always changes, so it's always new. But the reality is that voters do not pay any freaking attention to (laughs) any of it until the two, maybe just one month before the campaign, in which case the only stories that are freaking left are strategy stories. In the meantime, voters have zero idea what anyone freaking stands for. How's that?
0: That's great. That's great. No, I love it. So th- then I guess the, the, the question there, and let, and I am I in no way am as informed on this in terms of the research, so I will take all of it for face value. Uh, whose responsibility is it? Because you know very much as well as I do that the blanket term of the media has kind of always been something that's overbroad. Sure. And I would think in today's day and age, in 2019— when any jabroni like myself can have a microphone and a podcast and speak to thousands of people, (laughs) like now it is, it is kind of stretched beyond all use. So is there a hierarchy? Is there a like, all right, well broadcast networks should have to report things a certain way, but maybe it's okay for newsletters to do it, or we should clearly label things analysis. Like who's responsible for this? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Great question. So here in the United States, we have this thing called freedom of the press, which means anything that I say is just my opinion because there are no mandates for regulation, right? Period. I will say that in the early years of television, right? In the late 1940s, into the 1950s, the broadcast perceived of the news as a public good. And they were categorized as such. There were no demands on any of the broadcast news um, programs for profit. Can you imagine that? There were, they were basically a public service that was put out each day, a short little daily news broadcast yeah. to orient people to the information of the day with no demand for eyeballs or profit. Once you conflate profit and the public good, one of them is going to lose. So, so It is the case, actually, that back in the day, there was this sense that what we need to do is present the information in such a way people get the information that is most important. We do the best that we can to keep democracy healthy. And then over time, as the media became deregulated and all of a sudden it's like, oh, news can make money or let's squeeze it. Everything is about framing everything as a story, framing in terms of conflict, framing in terms of who's ahead and who's behind. You get the polling data, which is super awesome because it changes each day. And then it's like a big fight. Everything's a battle and everyone's destroying everyone. That, to me, is a failure of the system. And in terms of who has to do this, no one has to do this because we have a a private free press. They're all corporations who are doing what they do. But in terms of who should do it, I do think that the public should be aware of the fact that there are these subtle effects that are happening every day, every time they're exposed to information framed this way, and it is eroding out the the health of the democratic system.
0: I mean, but corporations were doing it before in the system that you mentioned. There were just fewer of them, and they were doing it without expectation of a profit, so it was kind of noblesse oblige, right?
1: Yes, but they weren't, there wasn't that same. If you look, actually, you track the content, for example, of the um, network news broadcast, like back in the early 50s, into the 60s, yeah, even into the 70s. What you have are stories that by our standards might seem bland or too wonky. But what they were doing was they were allowing, one, politicians to speak in their own voices for themselves for extended periods of time. And they didn't have this content analysis with people who were saying, here's what this means, here's why he's saying this. And it allowed for politics to have this sort of maybe guide of authenticity.
0: And that was, and that's worth, even if, if you know, because there were still critics of the media then, there were still politicians who said that sure. they were they were being covered unfairly and, and there was no rebuttal at that point, right? Because there were so few true, channels true. Uh, uh, that, 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 you know that even if like understand that there's going to be a a, a few you know x amount of a uh, 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 rat crap in in the pudding like there it's still better that we keep the the health of the of of our idea of politicians that they are indeed good hearted authorities.
1: I think that the look it was a different time we we, we hadn't had Watergate yet we hadn't had Vietnam yet right? Yeah. So, uh, God, I'm sorry. I'm stuck on the visual of rat crap in the pudding. I can't. I can't get the rat. <laughs> big crap shout. The big plate. shout
0: out to my boy Upton Sinclair. Oh, oh
1: my goodness. So what we have then is a, a very different lens through which people perceive anyone sort of working in the public sphere. So that's fair. And I don't know. I mean, that genie's out of the bottle. You can't go back. But I don't know that it is in the best interest of America, I'm just speaking about U.S. policy. Yeah, of course. So I'm an Americanist, but I, I don't think that it's in the best interest of American democracy for journalists to, you know, continue to throw fuel on that fire. I also, when you think about it this way, Justin, think too about what happens when you have a very cynical public. Yeah. The problem not is not just that people stop participating, it's that they then don't have that sort of foundational political knowledge so to allow them to make really good decisions, that's one. Two is, cynicism means people are distrusting of everyone, and when people distrust everyone, then it really allows for really bad, objectively bad information to take hold, like conspiracy theories. Yes. Part of what we find is that, you know, if if people think that no institutions are to be trusted, right, because that's where we're at right now, like, oh, science can't be trusted, higher ed can't be trusted, government can't be trusted. Well, so then you get anti vaxxers and like, you know, Sandy Hook conspiracy theorists who, because they do not have that foundational information or trust in the authority of these sort of legacy institutions, they're just like grabbing onto whatever feels right.
0: That is, all right, here, so that, that, that is a lot to unpack, but let me get one more thing in here with, with, with the politicians. Let me, let me give this to you and, and see, see how, you, how you like it. Uh, what if, indeed, everything you've said is absolutely true, but I would not put necessarily the problem on the media and the stories that they write, and instead say that uh, certainly post-Watergate, across the board... Politicians began to look at the press as a liability and not necessarily an open mouthpiece to the public. And that successful politicians have very often bared more of themselves, strategically so at times, uh, and... We see less and less of them. There's a reason why scandals that do pop up are often because of a lack of information. And it's not because the reporters don't want to cover it. It's not that that the reporters don't want to uh, uh, get more and more information out. It's because from a political standpoint, the campaign says, if we indulge this, it will only keep going. And it's better to starve the fire than to even take a shot at quenching it with any kind of information.
1: Yeah that's a, that is a great point. I am not going to object to anything that you just said at all. And in fact, the 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 machinery of the media system requires some kind of raw ingredients and so it tends then to fill that void with, you know, the chattering class. Yeah. So but but all of this is assuming that a 24-hour news system is, like, an inevitability and is, like, the divine right <laughs> of kings,
0: right? I mean, yeah, well, it's never mind. Yeah, you know, oh, no, we are totally in... Look, I got my degree in newspaper. My 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 distrust and disdain for any television news is something that was baked into me a long time ago and will never go away. So oh, you good! Will,
1: we, we can be best friends, then, because that's really what I'm talking about here, Justin. Yeah. What I'm really talking about is... is CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, cable punditry, the, the panels of pundits with all of their faces on the screen oh. talking about who's doing what and why they're doing it, and they're, you know, chills. I can't take it. And, oh. and to the extent that that is what our citizens come to think that democracy is— we're
0: doomed. That's I. I mean, look. Uh, uh, <laughs> this has been my take for so much that I've gotten yelled at in in my emails by people that work at some of these places. Uh, you know, because I'm I'm oh. <laughs> over I'm oversimplifying it. But I've 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 long said, look, twenty four hour news is news flavored entertainment. Like it, it, it is there not to make you more informed. It's there to watch make you watch a cash for gold ad in between two segments that they're going to. And that's why you get the content that you get. That's why you get all the flacks uh, who are just doing flacky things because they're yeah. there to put you in the middle of an argument that engages you, not to make you smarter, or or that's even it. or even to see the other side, or even to, to, to become oh, yeah. more empathetic to why uh, you know the, 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 that there's any general facts because they're just there to have their talking points, which are oftentimes totally yes. disassociated from each other.
1: Sure. And, you know, there's a wonderful book um, by Diana Mutz from the University of Pennsylvania. And, you know, she calls it In Your Face Politics. And she has all this data that shows that when you expose people to that kind of yelly, people yelling at each other content, there are some really bonkers things that happen in terms of comprehension. So, like, you'll end up maybe paying more attention and being more engaged, but You'll actually have a lower ability to recall whatever information the opposite point of view was arguing. So, like if I'm a liberal and I'm watching, I'll remember and pay attention to everything that the liberal says. I have a reduced ability or motivation to process anything the conservative said. Yeah. Right? I mean, that's really, that seems really dysfunctional to me. The problem is then the media organizations can take that finding and say, oh, look, they paid more attention more stickiness. That's great. Right. I mean, so the incentive structure is all off and I think you and I both agree on that. What I tend to see is that when it comes to this sort of strategy framing that we've been talking about, a lot of that, a lot of the fuel behind that is because of an assumption that people are going to be driven by, by, you know, a desire for conflict and drama and fighting and, when you actually look at some of the data, I have a friend, Ashley Muddyman, who's at Kansas, who's studying this right now. If you give people a choice of what kind of stories they're going to click on, it's it's not necessarily incivility that's going to draw people eyeballs in. It you know, stories of cooperation and stories of people acting as their authentic selves, I think there's an appetite for that. So, you know, if the process, if the assumption is that these kinds of frames Will drive profit and eyeballs. I think that that might not actually be true, and wouldn't
0: that be interesting? I mean, it but would. Then it, could, it would be. It would be yeah. indicative of the inherently short-sighted and stupid decisions that are made in television on all levels at all For times. Sure. Like, uh, yeah, I, I don't doubt it, and I think that now, specifically, as television finds itself at uh, the other end of the gun uh, with the, the internet continuing to kind of explode and be cheaper and more dynamic and faster than television is uh, I think you you are really going to kind of continue to see some of that soul-searching I mean hell there's a reason why CNN is is paying Tom Hanks to make uh, uh, you know, uh, I know documentaries about his favorite movies because they they can't keep the ratings uh, at uh, uh, at all times because they have seen an erosion there and if it weren't for the fact that we had quite possibly one of the most unique, Elections of all time in 2016 Who knows where all of these channels Would be now in 2019
1: That's, that's absolutely right And and the, the assumption That citizens when it comes to Their public affairs content they want to be entertained I think that that Assumption is like It's never actually been tested Because the, you know When you look at Some of our legacy newspapers that are Doing hardcore substantive Investigative journalism They're doing fine. When you look at the membership rates for National Public Radio, they're doing fine. If your USA Todays and your other sort of chain franchise newspapers that are trying to maximize eyeballs, they're the ones who are dying because of the assumptions that they're making.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I also have my – We're we're, we're on
1: the same side.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I also just have general. I have, I have, I have my own general uh, uh, problems with how uh, lazy and arrogant newspapers got in the late '90s, and how they like just they, in, they totally had the internet eat their lunch, uh, uh, assuming that it would be the land of milk and honey forever. And I think there's, there's, you know, the fact that that they watched Craigslist eat everything, and then they watched all their auto circulars went away, and then wondered, wow, why, are, why is all the money gone? We used to have a lot of money. <laughs> Like it's yeah. it, it just it's the reason why I yeah. didn't go into journalism or, or newspapers specifically.
1: So I tend to be I, I absolutely agree, and I think the data do show that all, you can't argue with the fact that you know the internet just changed the role of newspapers and changed their whole profit center. Yeah, I I still feel that media deregulation just completely put that whole process on steroids, right? The the fact that you can have an organization like like your gatehouse media that just is just gobbling up local papers, just gobbles them up. And if they're not going to make a profit, then they're shut down. Right. The idea that you're going to share content against across 752 newspapers. Well, then you only need one reporter for 752 towns. I mean, the whole thing is out of
0: control. You know, I, I I think I, I I agree. I agree. And, and I do think that there is, we are at a, a massive flux point where, even now, we are only starting to see real, like, tipping point mass market adoption of like internet news. Uh, uh whereas before, uh, that's where the 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 loss of these local papers really kind of were intensely damaging, uh, because that was yeah. the way people heard stuff. And and same with local television stations, which have been commoditized and gobbled up. I I don't. Yeah. I guess though, I I do have to say, I I don't know if the era of less outlets is ever going to be anything that I will think would have been a better solution though. Um, you mean less like okay like, so, yeah, so so you I said agree. you said media I, deregulation I right? Now, and inherently that outlets, means less f-
1: Yes. So now you might have infinite outlets, but if you only have seven viable owners, you know that that doesn't put us in necessarily a better spot. Now there are folks like yourself who can put out information, right? Yeah. so you are not beholden to some corporation. I'm assuming.
0: No right? no no no. Uh,
1: you, you're not owned by Disney, are you, Justin?
0: Not quite. no, no, no. I don't think I, i've I've seen my download numbers. I don't I don't think I'm mouse house quality just yet.
1: Okay. So so there there are avenues there right but you know there's this great work by Matt Heinman the internet trap where he talks about how yes it seems as though digital technology should democratize information but when you look at the percentage of views that actually go to still giant corporate outlets it's like 95% of all the traffic so yes. you know yes you can you know there's other channels but what what kind of fraction of the audience are they getting? You know, well, but but also, um, but
0: the, but there is there is a kind of wag the dog quality. Information that pops up in the strangest places will become national news, and that's happened now more than ever. When when you have sure, you know, local yes. local news. I mean, hell, even the, the the television behemoths that we were just decrying literally are covering you know a a Instagram comment.
1: Yes, yes, absolutely. You're absolutely right. So there is that sort of gateway possibility, but just in terms of volume, most of that volume is most of that volume of content that's coming from all these little accounts and little sites. It's just it's pissing in the wind. It just doesn't. There's nothing. There's nothing.
0: In terms of, in terms of what they I'm, own, yes, I think the, the, the clicks, no matter what. Uh, uh, the, the lion's share of the attention will always reside on the people with the biggest platforms, and those are the folks that are owned by the same media conglomerates that owned a lot of the television stations, and, and in many cases, newspapers uh, uh, throughout the country, right? No matter what, the the yeah. the Hearst family yeah. will still be able to cash their checks because of all of our attention. Right. You know, then, now, forever. But at the end of the day, I do think that it does matter that there is more of a free flow from uh, somebody who has literally no clout but an important truth that sure. gets to the top faster than it ever has
1: absolutely right I mean so so the way that I describe this is in terms of how Well, a lot of people describe it this way, that, you know, the old elite gatekeepers do not have that power anymore, right? So we all have a possible way of getting information out into the flow. Whether or not that will be picked up is a whole other question, but the possibility is there. So, you know, when you think think about different revolutions and you think about, you know, the Arab Spring or you think about um, Black Lives Matter, all of these, you can actually – I'm not, I don't want to be like a determinist in terms of media's role, but it, w- it would be very difficult to say that those things were not in some way aided by the fact that what you're saying is true—that digital technologies empower individual powerless people to engage in collective action and share their truths and make those truths become become um, visible to the public. You know, the idea that for for, for decades people were saying. You know, people of color were saying, you know, I I, I was a victim of police brutality exactly. and, and, you know, I was an unarmed black man. And they'd say that never happened. Well, how, now we have cameras and now that's <laughs> now that's terrible. You know, it it changes the reality. So you're absolutely right. The question is, you know, what's the signal to noise ratio? How often do those things make that impact?
0: And you're right. Look, there's there's a, a, a lot of noise out there, but I, I do think that it, it is. It's it, it's a world I'm happier to live in now than than before that that yes. these things can I would, I would that, that it's that. it's not it's not at an editor's discretion to say eh, maybe not now at some point we should it, yeah it's a great thing to talk about <laughs> yeah. amongst us journalists at the bar but God can you imagine what the reader re- reaction would be they'd hate us right
1: no that's so true so true I, I got to tell you that. Um, when we initially were going to talk about, you know, strategy and horse race framing and, and all of this, I thought, you know, I, I've, I've really come out very strongly opposed to that as the dominant frame that news, mainstream news organizations use in all of their reporting of politics. Because I think that if that's all we've got, we're screwed, okay? Yeah. But, and as I said, I am still kind of intrigued by and drawn to that kind of content because... There is a sort of fun to it, especially if you're someone who really likes politics, who's really interested in it. And I was thinking about how, you know, the idea of talking about politics in terms of strategy and talking about individual players and and that kind of behind the scenes stuff. I don't know if you remember, but J.S.K. Jr. put out a magazine called George magazine. Of course. Yeah. In the late 90s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I got a subscription to that. Right. What what I think he thought was exactly what you're saying, which is that maybe maybe talking about politics as drama and as a spectacle is a way of bringing people in and getting them excited about it. And, and maybe that's a that's a doorway to get people to care Um what I think is hilarious about the magazine, though, was it kind of was like People magazine or like a celebrity magazine, but for politics. Yeah, and I think it didn't. I think it didn't work because politicians are not as pretty to look at. Nope. <laughs> and, and you know, and it didn't. It didn't have that same hook. Uh, but he definitely had that sense that maybe this is an avenue to engage.
0: Yeah, you know, and and at that point in the late '90s, where you you really did have. I mean, at that point, you know, CNN was was the young kid on the block, right? Of of yep, trying to yep. establish themselves in terms of credibility. Uh, that was that was a fascinating way to look at it, and also people still bought magazines. Uh, kids ask your parents. True, true. Uh, but yeah, no, that was. I, I think that there there is something to that. We want to know more about these people. We want to know more about who they are and what makes them tick. And and I think that where uh, uh there there is that friction is well. What is the line between risk minimization and how much should the politician, or sorry, the, the, the uh, how much should the politician give and how much should the journalist fill in if there's nothing there, right? And if there's nothing there and there's a news hole to fill, what do you fill it with? Do you just run the stump speech again?
1: Right. right. Yeah, and I, I think about this in the context of 2016 and I think that it posed a really interesting quandary. like. I think I think Trump benefited from the fact that he he had this giant celebrity sort of IMDB archive that people could draw from and that journalists could draw from and putting together who they thought he was, right And he didn't necessarily have to divulge that much of his own personal life and what makes him tick. I mean, I thought about that throughout the campaign. It's interesting that that we really didn't end up with any of these sort of testimonials by people saying, oh, I went to school with him, and he was like this or that. I don't know about you, but I didn't see that, you know? No, Mainly you because know. I think, yeah, I think reporters had all this other stuff that they could use to build their sense of who he was.
0: Well, I mean, yeah, uh, uh, obviously we could do a much longer conversation about the 2016 election up to and including the fact that, I mean, for me, It was a perfect storm. You had the ascendancy of social media, of which he was very adept. You had the descendancy of 24-hour news, which nobody kind of really, I think, properly puts into perspective now that they have benefited. But uh, back then, it was a little bit of a dicier thing. And putting on uh, a a live feed of a rally where news is probable but not definite and not paying an anchor— is a tremendous way <laughs> to make a lot of money, yep. you know, uh, to that, that, that yep. hold a lot of attention and eyeballs. Uh, uh, aside from that, uh, he was the opposite of what I think was a decades long uh, uh, bad habit by politicians of being media risk averse because he was not. Yes. In, in fact, he was he going was to he was going to tell you a controversial opinion in his own words on a social media platform and then watch the yep. way you talked about it. And if you, if he didn't like the way that you talked about it, he'd call into your show and tell you you're not talking about it, right? Therefore making it yeah, more of a right. spectacle.
1: Right. It's really wild when you think about how he, say what you will about him, he was so skilled... At his manipulation of what is an inherently flawed political media system. Period, and he took advantage of that, and he knew how to play it in a way that no one else has understood how to play it. What I'm shocked at right now is that when you watch the behavior of these cable news networks, it appears as though they have learned nothing from that experience.
0: Well, because they have, uh, yeah, they they right. absolutely uh, have. It,
1: and and that to me is reflective of the fact that they are actually not interested in some public good as an outcome. I don't think they are truly, I don't think there's any mechanism internally at those networks for them to reflect on what is their end game other than eyeballs. Yeah, And that to me tells me that the whole thing's broken.
0: Yeah. You know, to me, and this is the, I'll wrap up here cause I've already taken too much of your time, but, uh, the, whenever you see a candidate that has a, an outsized advantage in terms of media, it, in my mind, usually boils down to the fact that they're doing the media's job for them. Because no matter what, you, you think about the press, it is, and even as, as you know cynical as we can be about television news, it's a tireless job you are constantly refilling the bucket. It is it is something where yeah. there's high pressure. I mean, uh, uh, I forget what, which of my reporter friends told me. The good news is that there's no money in it, but the better news is everyone hates you. Uh, you know, and and, and so uh, uh, you know, it, it can be thankless. And so you're happy when the news is interesting enough that you don't really have to do much. You're thrilled when that happens uh, for That's a long lovely. period of time. And, you know, if you look at... Trump, Trump absolutely did that with uh, uh, social media and his ability to call in and have access and connections, really, with television news. But also it goes back to as far as, you know, 1960, JFK was the first candidate to have a VCR machine. They had just been invented like three years before. He was
1: the
0: first campaign to ever have it. And he was the first campaign to not only refine his speeches by recording them, but also cutting them into Fifteen second, thirty second, and minute clips, and sending those to television stations, which were thrilled to have uh, fresh oh. news-breaking content, and they ran them un- that, unedited. That is you
1: know, and what's so funny is that so here, you know, that's the uh, the the pre-existing media package. It's still that's like still a thing. Mm-hmm. You know, anything to make life easier for the journalist means that your story will be told. Yeah. All right. Well, Well, I I don't think that we're, I don't think we're on the opposite side of this. I do feel like if all the public gets, if the dominant frame across all content is a strategy frame rooted in public opinion, data, and horse race coverage, that says that everything is based on strategy and no one actually wants what's best for the public. They're just trying to win. I think that does a disservice to the system. I don't think that there's a problem with sort of niche programs that engage in that because it is fun. It is yeah. it is playful. And for people who already have baseline information, that's great. It just can't be all we've got.
0: I agree. I, I think and, – and I think that now the one good thing I would say going forward is that raw information to me is something that is becoming more and more readily available, that you can get exactly from – the candidate's mouth or just exactly yeah. what was said, you know, between audio and visual recording and text to speech and stuff like that, there are speech to text. You can now get more of exactly what happened faster than you ever really were able to before, which I think at that point, that's the place where you can come in and say, okay, well that's what this means. And that's what this means. And that's what this means. But people can, can get a raw heartbeat of information uh, faster than they ever could before, which I do think is a positive thing as we move on in our media landscape, ever-changing though it might be. You know
1: what? I absolutely agree.
0: All right. Well, I'm glad that we were able to come to an agreement. (laughs) Dana Young, an associate professor of communication and political science at the University of Delaware, please pick up her uh, latest book, Irony and Outrage, The Polarized Landscape of Rage, Fear, and Laughter in the United States. Uh, thank you so much for joining me, Dana.
1: Thank you so much, Justin. This is so fun. Politics.
0: All right. I want to thank everybody who supports this show at TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Again, Take Politics Seriously. Big shout out to our producers for this episode. Laser, Andy, Paul, Mike, and Brad. If you want to join their ranks, then you can go ahead and get in on the $10 tier. Of course you can email the show TheYoungAmerican at gmail.com And we have a big Our big regular show tomorrow Uh, uh, We have an interview with my mom That's coming up on the show tomorrow As well as much, much more And I'm sure Every other crazy thing that happens Between now and then But Until I speak with you Later on A reminder That politics has Three Names